Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the crux of the story. Hey there, Mike. How are you? Good. Still very cold in Calgary. <laughs> and that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, winter, winter sort of merges into spring. <laughs> well, I'm hoping warm days are ahead for you. So it is April, after all. And uh, I want to start our news segment. we got a great guest later, Mark Schaefer. Folks are interested in marketing and brand and purpose ought to give uh, give a listen to that interview. But as I said, it is April and we just passed April Fool's Day. And the people's car, Volkswagen, said recently, just before April Fool's Day, that it was changing the name of its U.S. division to Volkswagen, spelled V-O-L-T-S-W-A-G-E-N. Shock of electricity. Yep. <laughs> to highlight its strategic focus on electric vehicles and its new electric SUV, And as I said, three days before April Fool's Day, they went as far as posting a fake press release dated a month out, announcing the name change as I guess as if it had leaked or something. And as well as having company officials confirm the name change to the media, including CNBC. And then later that same day, the company admitted, did 180 and said it was a premature holiday prank. As you might imagine, Mike, the prank has had the opposite effect of creating laughter. It's clear that Volkswagen lied to its consumers and journalists. Mm -hmm. The trust of the company is at stake again, following its emission scandals of a few years ago. And I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. Nathan Bomey, a business reporter at USA Today, summed up why some journalists felt duped by VW, tweeting, I asked my VW source directly, yes, I see the announcement, again, about this name change, but this is a joke, right? And the response was, no, it's not a joke, he said, and now they admit it was. So, Mike, what's your view on this uh, name change? And, and, you know, at, at one point, Volkswagen actually said, you know, look, it was a joke, it was harmless. And, and Bomi was ticked off, the guy from USA Today still, he said, hey, dear Volkswagen, you lied to me. You yeah. lied to AP, CNBC, Reuters, and various trade pubs. This was no joke. It's a deception. In case you hadn't noticed, we have a misinformation problem in this country. No, you're part of it. And why should anyone trust you again? So Mike, is it time to retire corporate April, April Fool's jokes? Maybe, but you know, this isn't the first time that April Fool's Day's jokes have gone amiss. You know, there are lots of advertisers, lots of marketers, lots of PR people yeah. that that always want to put cute and clever ahead of reason, right? Yeah. And and I can remember back in 1996, Taco Bell actually took out print ads in major newspapers in the country saying Taco Bell was buying the Liberty Bell. And they even had the audacity to place one of those ads in the Philadelphia Inquirer. 
Wow. You know, and then Burger King tried to create some buzz a few years later when it announced a brand new Whopper, especially designed for left-handed people. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, inherently, you know, there's no right-handed or left-handed burger. Yeah. Now, now those are those are silly examples, but sort of closer to home for our Boston University crowd. You know, back in 1998, April 1st, there are these two hosts. I, I almost wanted to say clowns on WAAF radio in Boston. Okay. Uh, Greg Hughes and Tony or Anthony Cumia, and they shared news reports that morning with citizens of Boston that then mayor Thomas Menino had died in a car crash in Florida. Oh, and it was all a prank. Oh, gosh. But it quickly became clear that it was a prank because they had mourning friends beginning to call and reach out to the station and to Menino's family and to his colleagues at City Hall. And, and, and once the hoax got exposed that Menino was indeed alive, the Hughes and Kumia show was, or Kumia show was no longer alive. Yeah, it was no longer. Not immediately, no. you know, fired. So, you know, all that said, on one level, Volkswagen changing its name to Volkswagen as a nod to its electric aspirations might seem minor. But this is the kind of information that even investors might trade on. Yeah. And as a consequence, raises a lot of questions there with the SEC and perhaps other organizations. And it clearly crossed a line when some in the media asked the PR people directly if it was a joke. And their response was to say it wasn't a joke. And in short, they lied. The best way not to get tripped up like this is to avoid not only April Fool's Day, but let's avoid being too cute and too clever in this profession. Well, well said. Although, who was it a few years ago also did a name change? Oh, the IHOP, the International House of Pancakes. That's right. They're going to become the International House of Burgers. Burgers, yeah. But I'm with you. I, I can't imagine, Mike, someone from marketing or brand, whomever, coming in and asking me to lie about a, a joke. And in what some of people have, have referred to as the age of authenticity that just yeah. runs counter. All right. So let's let's move on here. And uh, front page of the New York Times Sunday edition this week was a story about sports and the activism that we're seeing from the professional leagues. And we've talked about this somewhat previously on the crux. But of course, the big story recently was Major League Baseball pulling its all-star game out of Georgia. You know, the governor, the Georgian governor, Brian Kemp, on March 25th, signed a law that some people believe, many, in fact, will restrict voting among minority communities, particularly Black people. Republicans who supported that law, by the way, say will prevent fraud and stop illegal voting, although several investigations by the Republican Party, led by the Republicans, found no widespread voter fraud in Georgia. Including by the Georgia Secretary of State? Exactly. So in any event, there's there's been a reaction. One of the things it does, Mike, which I don't understand is you can't bring water and food to people standing online. It makes it a crime to do that waiting, waiting yeah. to vote. So yeah. um, I mean, I think it's probably tied to traditional things about not electioneering, but not yeah. giving water sounds a little ridiculous. So Major League Baseball was scheduled to have its all-star game, which is a big 
big mm-hmm. thing for the for baseball in 2021 in Atlanta. And last week, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, pulled it out of Atlanta. And his reason was, he said, I have decided that the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport is relocating this year's all-star game in Major League Baseball draft. Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and imposes restrictions to the ballot box. And now you may remember a few years ago, I think the NBA pulled its all-star game out of Charlotte, North Carolina, after the passage of a law that limited anti-discrimination protections in the state. We've also seen lately the NBA, the WNBA, Major League Baseball players sit out games in the wake of the George Floyd murder last year. So Mike, what do you think of the, this activism by professional sports? And specifically, what do you think about Major League Baseball's decision? Yeah, as you were going through the the litany of a lot of these sports organizations, one example that wasn't professional sports, but probably had the biggest impact was back in 2015 when the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, threatened to move its headquarters out of Indiana when the state's governor and legislature had pushed through what I think they called something like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which most people read as discriminating against gays and lesbians or gave businesses in Indiana the right to discriminate against them. And that threat actually prompted then Governor Mike Pence and state lawmakers to do, you know, an about face and to make quick changes in the law. So I think a lot of sports organizations since that time have looked at different circumstances or different legislation when they thought it impacted an audience important to them to make a stand. Now, I don't know if that is going to happen here. Georgia is not Indiana and taking away an all-star game is perhaps not the same thing as losing an organization that's there for a longer period of time. But I think Major League Baseball is running a business. Right. It's, it's players and fans are diverse. It sees the actions of the state of Georgia as being something that a large swath of that diverse audience is opposed to and cares about. So it's going to take a stand. I, I think that's their right, just like it is in Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola's mm-hmm. rights as companies headquartered in Georgia with diverse employees and diverse consumers to voice their concern. And when we're talking about something as fundamental as free and open elections and broad and equal access to the ballot, more power to them. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, you know, and you wonder how the now baseball has gotten some pushback and you know we read about these things in the newspapers and it's always interesting when it you know it confronts you in your personal life i went to the i go to the store every morning here in upstate new york and i get a copy of the newspaper mm-hmm. and i walked in the other day and some guys were standing around jawing about this and lamenting in a quote here Baseball used to be a good citizen. Now all they care about is Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, it you know, you, you hear these things and it really opens your eyes when it yeah. hits you in your personal life. But I, I have to say, I really applaud Major League Baseball, which I think, by the way, Mike, you know, you and I are big baseball fans and the Yankees are one and two at this point. So I'm not going <laughs> to bring that up. 
I think it's probably the worst run league of the professional sports and the last to the game on some of this activism, but I give them a hearty uh, round of applause on this one. Okay, let's go on to something else that really caught my eye this week. We are keeping an eye on Amazon and it seems to have gone all in on his campaign to fight unionization of a where, one of its warehouses in Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, about 5,800 workers at the warehouse have been filling out ballots, mail-in ballots since February 8th as part of a campaign on whether to join the retail, wholesale, and department store union. The voting ended last week and the counting of ballots begins this week, although it's expected to take some time. As the voting was underway, Amazon sparred with a handful of high-profile lawmakers on Twitter, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and over its working conditions, its tax policies, and threats to break up big tech. And some of it, to me, was Amazon's posts were kind of breathtaking. And the jabs came from Amazon's official social media account and Dave Clark, the company's consumer boss. Clark tweeted, I welcome Bernie at Senator Sanders to Birmingham and appreciate his push for a progressive workplace. I often say we are the Bernie Sanders of employers, but that's not quite right because we actually deliver a progressive workplace. Now, in reading the uh, media accounts of this, Mike, the tweets were reportedly sent out following a directive from CEO Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. to fight back against the company's critics, and that was reported in Recode. And industrial relations experts say the social media offensive shows how worried Amazon is about the unionization vote, which could spread to the other company warehouses. Mike, what do you think of this aggressive campaigning by Amazon, does that help or hurt the company? Well, first, directly to your question, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that aggressiveness is going to hurt or help Amazon. But I also think it may have the wrong focus here. The most mm -hmm. important audience are the workers. Mm -hmm. The most important audience is their own employees. You know, two decades ago, I was in my first role as a CCO, as a chief communications officer, and I was at a large telecom and we were faced with an impending strike, a work stoppage, and ultimately we took a 15-day strike. There were some in management at the time that thought we should be really critical of the union and politicians and others who came out in support of the union. Uh, there were still others in management who were kind of old school that thought we should say nothing and leave you know, the bargaining at the bargaining table, right? which had been kind of the advice, even yep. by outside experts up until that point. Been there. But, yep. but yeah, so at, after having studied at, in, at that time, there had been a recent strike by the United Auto Workers. There had been a strike by what was then Bell Atlantic, which would later be Verizon, right? And we watched what the union had done. We watched what the companies had done. And we decided actually to strike a, a, a middle ground. We realized that to say nothing was to cede ground to critics, but at the same time, our aim was not to take on critics as much as clarify and inform with facts. And additionally, we went to all extremes, all extremes to make sure our employees knew we cared about them. Yeah. So much so that when they returned, 
to the office or to their place of work. We had people for, for those weeks that were in management that actually had to oversee those jobs while they were on their strike. We had all those people leave notes and we kind of give, gave them a template. And they all left notes and it would say like, Gary, you were missed. As I tried to field some of your responsibilities in your absence, I came to more fully appreciate what you mean to our organization and to me. If there is ever anything I can do to help, please do not hesitate to give me a call or send me an email. And then they signed it and left their email and left their phone number. Oh, that's great. So taking that approach, by the way, we had the strike took place in August. We did our engagement surveys with employees every November. So year over year with the strike in the middle, our scores were up double digits even on factors associated with management trust. So for me, yes, there's a reason in today's world to communicate in these situations. You can't let others define you like they say in politics. At the same time, when it comes to issues of management and labor, two things are key. Keep it to the facts Mm -hmm. and make sure you're messaging in an employee-centric way. Right. So smart, Mike, really smart. I always felt like in, in that situation, you wanted to look like the reasonable party yep. and, and had some success with that. And employees were open, even the ones on strike to what you yep. had to say. So yep. the ears were open. I, I, I don't know, I, I think Amazon here reveals some of its personality mm-hmm. and to your point, whether it helps or hurts them, I don't know either. But, certainly but somehow, this- some way, they've, they've decided that, that their goal is to be combative. Yes. And, and I don't know that that's healthy. Right. All right. Well, let's end our little conversation here, Mike, with some cereal, some breakfast cereal. All right. So many of you may have heard about this cinnamon toast crunch situation. And on March 22nd, a comedian named Jensen Karp tweeted that his cinnamon toast crunch had what appeared to be shrimp tails. Had more crunch. It had more crunch than usual, coated in cinnamon sugar mixed in in the box of cereal. And then further tweets from Carp showed unidentifiable black particles in the bag and cooked onto some pieces, which comments speculated but have not been confirmed to be rodent droppings. The cereal brand representatives replied quickly, saying that their internal investigation led them to believe the items were, quote, an accumulation of the cinnamon sugar that sometimes can occur when ingredients aren't thoroughly blended. Now, while that tweet was meant to reassure people that there was no contamination and actually made the issue blow up as consumers trusted their eyes, they clearly looked like shrimp tails and not what the brand had to say. Brand representatives took the conversation offline. They offered him some vouchers for cereal. Carp said no and asked him to send the specimens from his box to them. And he split it up, sort of kept some for himself, his own proof, etc. So my students have been talking about this all week on the response by General Mills. And as far as I know, there's no have way- they, Have they stopped buying Cinnamon Toast Crunch? They have, and they have. And, and we, we discussed that uh, last week in class. No resolution on what the items are, but it seems to me 
there are clear lessons here from this serial showdown. Mike, what are they? So first of all, whether this is shrimp tail or tall tail, having worked <laughs> for food companies in the past, I'm a little concerned that it seems like General Mills and its spokesperson made assumptions prior to actually investigating the product. Right. So, so that's one concern. In my opinion, you need to assume the consumer is right at the outset and then quickly make arrangements to actually review, you know, the box, the inner packaging it came in, the product itself. And even if you doubt the sagacity of the person's claim, which I do, by the way, in this case, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. You don't know if this is a case of product tampering. You don't know if right. a worker on some assembly line might have been eating shrimp and actually dropped the tails <laughs> in. But before actually investigating the product and making assumptions that it's this accumulation of cinnamon and sugar, that's insufficient, I think. Yeah, exactly. General Mills knows, they know that they do not process any shrimp and certainly not process any shrimp in that plant where cinnamon toast crunch is produced. And so it is either tampering or employee carelessness, or it's a hoax. Now, each box of cereal, you can go home and check this out. These days, usually on the very top where the box is to be opened, has a better if used by date. Right. And then there's a serial number, not, not C, but S-E-R-I-A-L. <laughs> there's a serial number. And that number instantly tracks that box to a specific plant location and the date it was actually processed and put into the box. And, and, and so each of the plant, all each of those plants also have protocols for employees for scrubbing in and scrubbing out and no food is allowed on the line. Yeah. And there are cameras everywhere focused on the product these days for health, safety and environmental reasons. And that's all, when you're a large company like General Mills, you know, there's OSHA, there's all of these things. There's, you know, the, in some instances, you'll have people from, from the ag department. Right. I mean, so, so it's- Regulators. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, you know, if this were a mom and papa organization, or, you know, this was some localized effort, it'd be different, but that's not the case for General Mills. So I would have much preferred a statement that clearly talked about yeah. safe and, safety and health and, and said, we want to work with you to Figure this consumer out. to yeah. get to the bottom of this and then explain the great lengths that General Mills goes through, right? Yeah. So what prompts me to think, though, that this is a little fishy, you already <laughs> told me the person is a comic, yes. right? Who discovered the shrimp. And what's his last name? Carp. carp. And Carp, <laughs> Jensen Carp, is married to an actress. And what's her name? Ooh. Danielle Fischel, who actually played this character called Topanga Lawrence on a popular sitcom, Boy Meets World. And the product was purchased where? At Costco on Topanga Canyon Boulevard. And wow. to top it all off- here, Mike. To top it all off, Carp himself appeared on a podcast. And what was the name of the podcast? Pistol oh, no. Shrimp. <laughs> it all sounds pretty fishy to me. That's all I'm saying, Gary. Oh, man. We're going to have to pull Mike back from the brink here. He's, there's, wow, that, that was a lot of effort, Mike, for that 
<laughs> but excellent. Hey, the only thing I'll say, I'll add about, I, I can't top that. We often talk about in crisis management, issues management, speed versus risk. Yeah. And by going fast, you get it wrong often. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm with you completely yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, what you gotta do is you gotta, you, you do have to answer the question, right? And you gotta yeah. provide a status and you gotta provide your sentiment in terms of where you're going and that you'll, you know, you'll come back to the table and because and, you wanna find out the real facts yeah. and you wanna show that you care. And I think in this particular case, people just move too quickly. Yeah, exactly. So we have a great guest today, Mark Schaefer. You might have advantage. Yeah, and, and just a really fantastic conversation that's well worth listening to. So let's go to the interview. Our guest today on the 54th episode of The Crux is marketing expert and author Mark Schaefer, who also serves as the COO for B Squared Media and is on the faculty at Rutgers University's Business School. His global clients through the years have included companies like Adidas or in Europe, Adidas, Cisco Systems, Dell, GE Life Sciences, IBM, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and Pfizer, among many others. Mark has written a number of business books from the content code that speaks to the challenges of cutting through the wall of noise online to Marketing Rebellion. The subtitle of that book reads, The Most Human Company Wins. His latest book is Cumulative Advantage. Mark, welcome to the crux and congratulations on the book. Thanks, and thanks for such a kind introduction. Well, Gary and I are thrilled to have you on the show and, and, and thank you for being with us. Now, in prepping for today, Mark, I learned that you had studied with the great Peter Drucker, whom many view as kind of the father of modern day management. And he once said of marketing that the aim of marketing is to know and understand the customer so well, the product or service fits and sells itself. Right. Mark, is that still true today? And if so, how does a customer of a product or the stakeholder for an idea cut through today's noise amid multiple channels and platforms? Well, it's, it's amazing to me how often you still see Dr. Drucker's quotes floating around and how relevant and, and, and insightful he remains. There's a book he wrote in, in 1984 called innovation and entrepreneurship that, I mean, it's still as fresh as can be. He, he sort of predicted the gig economy that, that we have today. And here's where I think he got it right, especially with that quote, that, you know, growing up in marketing, marketing was really about manipulating. And some, you know, authors out there still talk about marketing is about changing people. It's about manipulating. And I don't think it's that way at all. I think today marketing has to be respectful. The, our consumers today have the accumulated knowledge of the human race in the palm of their hands. They can make really good decisions. 
And today marketing is more about coming along those people at their point of need and saying, how can we help you? How can we create more value with you? How can we help you have a healthier life, a happier life, a more entertaining life? How can we help help you make money or save money? And so that's really the mindset shift we need today that I think is completely consistent with what Dr. Drucker taught all those years ago. Yeah, and Mark, I'm keenly interested in your new book and, and, and a bit curious about the title, Cumulative Advantage. I, I, I seem to remember a concept that was about scientific research and it was used to kind of explain the advancement of scientific careers that went by kind of that same name. Is your title related to that concept? And then also tell us a bit about how one creates over time a cumulative advantage for one's business or idea. Well, Mike, I want to say that you're being entirely too humble because in our, in our pre-call, you correctly noted the original researcher for that topic. And I've done you know, quite a few interviews. You're the only one. So I'm quite <laughs> amazed and, 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 and just impressed that your knowledge is that deep. And it's, I, it's, it's by circumstance. My, I have a daughter who's in the scientific field. Look, take it, man. Just take it. (laughs) Take it and go go for it. And uh, well, you know, the reason I wrote this book is I think the compelling preoccupation with businesses and marketers today is really to answer one question. How can we be heard? How can we be seen? How can we be discovered? And it's getting increasingly hard for many, perhaps impossible I recently read just during the pandemic, the amount of content being published on LinkedIn doubled just in one year. So if you thought it was difficult before, it's even more difficult now. And I'm not the kind of person to say, oh, well, it's hard. Let's you know move on to something else. I become obsessed in, in an unhealthy way. And I want to figure this out. And it led me to this research in the 1960s that really started this investigation of momentum and how does momentum start? How does momentum build? How does it work for some people versus some others? And it was a seminal research paper in 1968 by Dr. Robert Merton, an academic at Columbia University who wrote a very famous paper called The Matthew Effect. Now, not many people have heard of this other than you, Mike, and the reason is because how many people really know of that many famous sociological research papers, period. But this has been applied, this idea has been applied that if you begin with some initial advantage, sort of play your cards right, that this can lead to unstoppable momentum over time. And then he went on to say, unless there are countervailing processes. But my puzzle and what I, the the code I try to crack, he didn't say what they were. Presumably, if you knew what these countervailing processes were, if you're not one of those people having this overwhelming opportunity to create momentum, you could do something on your own. So I, I called up his son, who is, his original paper was on Nobel Prize winners, and his son is a Nobel Prize winner. I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> he, he won a Nobel Prize in economics. He's still teaching at MIT. I said, I'm doing this book about your dad. 
I need to learn what these countervailing processes are. He said, well, I'm not the person to talk to. You need to talk to my stepmother, Harriet Zimmerman. She was his research assistant that worked on that paper. Wow. I contacted her and she sent me all these unpublished papers of, of the work that sort of continued these ideas. So between her help and, and other research and my own independent research, I was able to sort of piece together this pattern that seems to occur with regularity in people and businesses that create momentum. And I think the thing that's important about this is that this is accessible, it's doable for almost anyone. You don't need to have a million dollars in the bank. You don't need to have an Ivy League school education. You just need to sort of know how the world works and how this pattern exists to start to think about how can it, it can be applied to you. Well, well, speaking of momentum, Mark, I'm about to stop it all here on this podcast because I don't know, I don't know much about marketing or sociological. Re- I'm so impressed. This is the first time, Mark, I've been impressed with Mike. <laughs> After all these years as, you know, being close friends with him, I'm really impressed. Yeah. But seriously, your, your recent books, and, and by the way, our viewers or our listeners can't see it, but behind Mark are your, your covers on your books are really striking. You're mm. really terrific design work on your books. I was looking through them this morning. It's, it's well done. But they're not simply marketing books. There's also implications for public relations, obviously where I've spent my career and branding and how companies and their products and services relate to the world. And the subtitle of your book, as Mike mentioned, Marketing Rebellion, one of your books, is The Most Human Company Wins. What do you mean by that, Mark? Well, what's happening in our world is companies normally were built on advertising impressions. And I was reading recently how Ivory Soap, one of the great products of our world, in the 1960s had 50% market share. Today, their market share is less than 3%. Now, how is that even possible? (laughs) We're not outsourcing soap, right? I mean, it's not being replaced by solar energy or something. (laughs) And, and, And yet many iconic brands that were built on advertising are in amazing decline. And then one day I walked into a friend's home. I was there for dinner and I went into their bathroom and in their bathroom, they had soap there from the Knoxville Soap Company, where I live here in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was cucumber and grit soap. Sounded absolutely delicious. (laughs) So I went out to my host. I said, I have a question for you. Please come into the bathroom with me. And they got a curious look on their face, but they obliged me. Yeah, uh uh-oh, right. And I said, I want to know. Why did you buy this soap? Procter & Gamble has been advertising this soap to you your whole life. Why did you buy this instead of Irish Spring or Dial or Dove or something? And this person thought for a moment and said, you know, I don't know if I love this brand, but I love the hands that made it. And she went on to tell me about this amazing family that makes this soap, how they're committed to create a sustainable business, how they're involved in the community, they teach maker classes, right. how they're so good to their employees. And she went on and on and on and on and on. And she said, you know, advertising, I can't even remember the last time I saw an ad. I watch <laughs> more TV than I've ever watched. 
but I watch Netflix and I watch Amazon Prime and I listen to music all day long, but I listen to Spotify or sometimes audiobooks. I never hear ads. And oh, by the way, I've got an ad blocker on my, on my phone. She said, I would say my consumption of ads has declined by 95% in the last five years. Now, so this is a kind of a long-winded way to answer your question. Our brands and our businesses traditionally have been built through advertising impressions. Right. But today, it really, the emotional connection to a product or a company is coming through humans. If you listen to her story, she didn't buy this soap because it's lemon fresh or because she had a coupon. <laughs> In fact, she paid 10 times more for that bar of soap, soap yeah. than a bar of ivory. And what she's saying is these people matter to me. And if you and the data and the research supports this, that today, especially younger people, they want to know what are you doing? Who are these people? How do you run your company? What do you believe in? What do you stand for? What do you think about the environment? You know, how do you treat people? Do I would I want to would I want to work there? That's more important than the product attributes. Right. And so there's a lot of research about this. And then if you the other key point of this story is she was so enthusiastic about this soap, I went out and got some. Now, today, the customer is the marketer. Two thirds of our marketing is occurring without us. And this suggests an, a need for an entirely new mindset that the brand isn't what we tell you it is. A brand is what people tell each other. Each other, yeah. And, and, the, and, and today, the challenge is how do we enter that two thirds? How do we earn our way in? Because we can't buy our way in anymore. Nobody's seeing these ads. If they see them, they don't believe them. The advertising industry is in a free fall. And so that's really what, what the Marketing Rebellion book is about. And, and so, Mark, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, so no. you, you, through B Squared, you, you are talking to a lot of companies on how to manage their brands. So how does that translate into the advice you give? Mark, to these companies, I, I assume it's what you just said to us. Yeah. That there's a transformation underway that you, you have to respond to. Well, what, and I've, I've been very, very lucky that many companies, even Fortune 100 companies have read this book <laughs> and have, have said, Mark, we need to do this. Yep. You know, we, we need your help. What do we do? And I think one of the major ideas I'm working on right now with a lot of companies is that being the most human company means that you're not just in a community, you're of a community. So when you're in a community, you donate money to the United Way. When you're of a community, you roll up your sleeves and you find where are people hurting today and how do we apply the resources of our company to really affect people in a meaningful way. Let me give you a, a small but powerful example. A few weeks ago, we had this crazy ice storm hit most of the country, including yeah. Texas. Mm -hmm. My own brother in Houston lost power and water and heat for 40 hours. And there was a big furniture store in Houston that said, we haven't lost heat. If you're cold, come to your, our store and warm yourself. They brought in food. They created a play area for children. And more than 500 people a night slept on the mattresses oh in that store. Now, what does it have to do with marketing? 
I guarantee you, nobody in the city of Houston will ever buy furniture from anybody again other than that company. Why? Because they're not in a community, they're of a community. When you're of a community, if your neighbors are cold, you said, come warm yourself. If your neighbors are hungry, you said, come, I'm going to help you at your point of need. And this is what's great branding, building an emotional connection between what you do and your audience. And in a time like this, when so many people are suffering, we have an opportunity to not just build emotion, but to become legendary. Yeah. And by the way, where did I see that story? It was on the front page of the New York Times because it's so unusual right. to be of the community today. And that's what we need to do as marketers. Well, I, I just, what you just said, I think underscores a lot of things for me. I mean, I worked with a, a CEO at one point who made the point that everything communicates, right? Yes, right. And, and, and so our actions and even what we do from a public relations standpoint, I think is becoming more important relative to what we think of traditional advertising and promotions. Is that right? Well, absolutely. I, 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 I can't remember that quote. It's like everything you say and everything you don't say is, is your brand. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's your brand. And I think one of the things I talk about in the, in the Marketing Rebellion book is that people don't believe you unless they see you in their lives, unless they see that you're really impacting my community or my city or my state in some meaningful and productive way. And we see this angst in marketing, this disconnect. The pandemic is a perfect example, right? At the beginning, of the pandemic, everybody was saying, oh, in these unprecedented times, we are with you. There's actually a video on YouTube, which is hilarious. It's called, all pandemic advertising is the same. And it does these fast cuts between <laughs> all these big corporate ads and it's the same music and the same voice and the same words. And that's the point of the Marketing Rebellion book that if you're wedded to this advertising script, you're going to lose. You're going to become obsolete. And it's the companies that are really paying attention and really doing something, not just saying words, but doing something. Those are the ones that will be remembered and, and people will buy from them. Yeah. Well, help me out with something. You know, it's, it's interesting. And you've done a lot of research on on content and, and marketing, and it comes through in cumulative advantage. But in recent years, we've seen this growth in the use of influencers, you know, and, and, and many of them are actually paid for. In fact, probably a lot of them are paid for. I'd love for you to talk about and help me out with this, is that how does the use of paid influencers jibe with what we at least hear from millennials and Gen Zs, that they have a desire for greater authenticity. Those two things never seem to match up for me. Well, it's, that's a remarkably complex question. And, and I'll first say that most brand mentions, like 95% of brand mentions on social media are not paid. Yeah. So, so I mean, when pe people believe each other and, and, creating user, finding a way to create user-generated content where people are talking about your brand. That's better than any advertising you could ever have. It's, it represents organic advocacy. So, for, so that's an important point mm -hmm. that this organic 
advocacy is amazingly important. Now, a lot of the paid influencers, quote unquote, really are entertainers. They, that, I mean, they're entertainers. Mm -hmm. They're YouTube stars, they're TikTok stars, they're Snapchat stars. And there is value to that. I mean, the first paid influencer was Charlie Chaplin and, and Babe Ruth was kind of in the same mm -hmm. era. Babe Ruth made more money being an paid influencer for cigarettes and hot dogs than he made on baseball. <laughs> so, and, and there, there's some, you know, there's some strategy about being associated with a, a personality and what, and, and what they stand for. But what, where the power really comes is organic advocacy. And that's where a lot of the work in, in, in influencer marketing is moving today. It's really moving away from relationships, long-term relationships with paid influencers, which is basically the same as hiring an entertainer, mm -hmm. toward having more short-term you know, engagements with, with what I call our advocates. These are people who authentically, organically, they love you. They have smaller audiences, but they believe in you and they love you and they can't get enough of you. And that's really where the important work is happening today. So one of the things that, that also has caught my eye in, in terms of reading various things that you've written through the years is, is, is that you created quite a stir back in 2014 when you, you posted this, this blog called Content Shock, why content marketing is not a sustainable strategy. Why did that create such a stir? I know it ultimately led to your book too, The Content Code. What is the prevailing wisdom these days relative to content marketing? Well, first of all, thank you for doing such good research. <laughs> <laughs> Recalling a blog post from 2014. Well, the reason that, 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 that created such a stir then and is still relevant now is that I did not know this. I didn't consider this to be controversial whatsoever because it's common sense. It's, it's, it's economics. Yeah. It, whenever there's an overflow of something in any human or natural or economic system, things change. Mm -hmm. And in the world of content, when there's this tsunami of content happening, and you're not a novelty anymore, you're going to have to stand out in one of two ways. Number one, you're going to have to spend more money to be greater and earn that attention and beat the competition. Or number two, you're going to have to spend more money advertising. Either way, it's going to cost more. And a lot of companies aren't going to be relevant anymore. They're not going to be able to compete. Quick example from my own life. I've been a contributor to Harvard Business Review. Mm -hmm. I would get one out of every three articles I proposed to Harvard Business Review approved and published. Then about three or four years ago, I wasn't getting any approved. <laughs> and I asked the editor, what's going on? She said, you know, Mark, you're doing great work. And two or three years ago, this would be approved and published. But a lot of executives have learned now that putting an article in Harvard Business Review is great for their branding. Now they're hiring these agencies and they're spending thousands and thousands of dollars to create these epic, epic posts. We're going to take those. That's content shock. I can't compete against that unless it's, a, it's an arms race. It's a content arms race. Now, think about my earlier comment about the amount of content that's being published on LinkedIn, doubled in the last 12 months. I mean, so 
even the people back then who were sort of provoked by my post have since apologized <laughs> and, and said, you were absolutely right, of course. And they're writing about it and talking about it. And the word content shock has sort of become part of the vernacular and it's, it's in books and it's in conferences. And it just shows that there's just too much stuff and we've got to compete in different ways. We've got to find a way to zig instead of zagging. Yeah. We've got to find new ways to stand out. So along those lines, Mark, I come from a, my corporate experience is B2B. So, so how do you use content or, or whatever in a B2B setting to try to generate the kind of organic, authentic relationships that you, you talked about? It seems so difficult for, for B2B companies to establish that kind of rapport with people. I remember, you know, the closest I, we, we got was we had some young people Get tattoos of a GE90, the big giant engine that powers the triple sevens around the world. And they got tattoos of them on their on their arms and such. And we said, well, there's two, you know, or, <laughs> organically generated. But how do B2Bs play this game? Well, first of all, I have to say it's it's critically important because what we're seeing is that most of the purchase decision is happening before a salesperson is ever called. We also see the research that somewhere between 80 and 90% of content on a B2B website is never seen. Now the economic value of content that's not seen and shared is zero. So what they're missing is they, they've you know had a drink of the advertising agency Kool-Aid and they said, oh, we need to create content. We're gonna create more and more content because we're afraid not to. Oh, wait, no one's seeing it. No one's looking at it. No one's sharing it. What do we do? And the ad agency says, oh, well, let's do SEO. That worked before. We're going to trick people to click on these links. You know what? You can do that, but you can't trick someone into reading it. You can't trick something, someone into actually using it or sharing it. Right. So we got to go back to the beginning. What the heck are we trying to do here? We've got to create content and not create random acts of content, but think about this very, very strategically about how does content connect to each page of this, of the each part, each stage of the sales process. Right. And what are we doing to create something that's really not about us, but that's insanely helpful to customers because you know they're going to be looking at every single thing we have and comparing it to our competitors. That's right. So this is one of the biggest myths in content marketing, that content begins with us and our narrative and the arc of our story. It needs to start with our why. And here's the truth. No one cares. No one cares. <laughs> I'm with they you. care about my why. Yeah. Uh -huh. They care about the arc of my story. They don't give a crap that you just had your 50th anniversary. They want to know, how do I solve this problem so I don't get fired? And, and that's, that's the way we need to serve our customers is we need to make the customer the hero, not us. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and how do we relate that to B2B brands? Mark, you know what I mean? In other words, yeah. that's, that to me, I, I love outcome driven, whatever you want to call it, yeah. content marketing, right? I mean, I just, content, I just think it's the way forward. And, and I've repeated what you've said many times, nobody cares about you. 
right. right to clients and that kind of thing. But how does that play into the bigger idea of brand today in a sense that you, ha- you do have to stand for something today? Wrong. Okay, go ahead. Tell me. All right, let's do this little exercise. Think about everything you've purchased in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. Could be a shirt, could be a car wash, could be a plant for your garden. Okay. How many of those items do you know what they stood for? Almost none. Yeah, right. And all of those places have marketing people behind them. Yeah. So you don't have to stand for something. And I think that's a big myth is that sometimes you want a car wash just because your car's dirty or you want a hamburger because it tastes good. So let's, I mean, I think we get into a lot of navel gazing and this is really important because I'm concerned that this is, you know, everybody's concerned about what is our purpose and how do we take a stand? We need to take a political position and that's not true. That can be perilous. And I'm not, and by the way, I've got a whole chapter about this in the Marketing Rebellion book where I say, this can be critically important to you earning loyalty from your customers. I'm not dismissing the opportunity. I'm just saying it is not for everyone and it doesn't have to be divisive. It can be something that's uplifting. I'm just saying, be super careful and don't buy into the narrative that everybody needs to take a stand because they don't. Now that I've interrupted you, please. No, but so Mark, I want to go back. So let's go back to cucumber soap then. Yeah. So to that purchaser, they stood for, I'm using air quotes listeners, you know, they stood for local handmade, right. Organic, I assume along those lines. Yeah. So you do stand for something that drove that purchasing decision. Right. Am I but, wrong about that too? But the important, the important nuance here, and this is especially relevant to B2B, is that increasingly the personal brand is the brand. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, why does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Te- Tesla's been around as an automotive company for 11 years. It has a higher market value than Ford Motor Company. Mm. Now, there's a, that's a, it's a complicated issue, but I think part of the, of the brand equity is Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. He is a person we know, we believe in. He's not a perfect person, but he's a believable person. And to some, he represents the greatest entrepreneurial mind of our generation. Who do you love at Ford? <laughs> Name one person. Who do you love Boy. at T-Mobile? Right. Name one person, right? So that is the distinction. Who do you love at this soap company? I love these people because they come and teach us stuff because I see them show up in the community. So it's not, it's not just purpose. It's not just a stand. It's an emotional connection because you believe in individuals and people. Increasingly, the personal brand is the brand. Right. Interesting. That's, yeah, well, that's really good. That's, I, I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. I got to yeah, find somebody to love it for, though. I, I don't know. I'm just going <laughs> to do some research. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting to me, too. I mean, in, in cumulative advantage, you kind of set out a little bit of a formula or at least things to think about if you want to build cumulative advantage for your business, your product, your idea over a period of time. 
And you have some interesting examples. I mean, you, you talk about the need for curiosity. You talk about the certainty of uncertainty. You have examples of Raji Thomas, you know, who created Sprinkler. And you have the example of Odeo that started off as, as something other than it became. What allowed those examples or examples like them to store up or build up that cumulative advantage that allowed them to be successes? Well, one of the things that is sort of maybe, it's, it's either eye-opening or alarming. <laughs> it's either encouraging or disheartening is that behind nearly every successful person or every successful business is a random event. <laughs> <laughs> And we don't really like to talk about that that much. You know, we like to say, oh, it was our vision and our, our strategy, our plan and our hard work. But I can, I can directly point to a random moment in my life as to the, like in, in the early 90s as to the reason why I'm talking to you today. In the early 90s, I was stuck in my marketing job. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what was next. And I looked, what, what else, what's going on here? The internet is beginning. So I had some ideas. I was reading a lot about this. I thought this could be, there could be business applications to this. So I'd go to my boss. I said, I would like to subscribe to AO, AOL <laughs> and put it on my company expense account. And after much debate, because he thought it was a huge waste of money, he agreed. And I had these ideas and they, and they worked. Then a few years later, this Fortune 100 company woke up and said, oh my goodness, we need to have an e-business strategy. Who shall we get to run this thing? Oh, Mark, you've been on the internet longer than anybody and you had some good ideas, you do it. And I was all of a sudden, I had a team and I had a budget and I was able to experiment and, and really in the day, be a B2B internet pioneer. Then eventually I, I started my own company and consulted and here I am. It started with a, literally one random conversation. Now, I also need to point out something important. I didn't have to have an idea and let it sit. I pursued the idea, mm -hmm. right? I pursued the idea. It fit with a shift in what was happening in the time. The internet was beginning. In the book, I call this a seam. It's a fracture in the status quo that creates enormous new opportunities. And so that's really how momentum begins. And that's a very important part of the pattern in this book. And I think one of the reasons why it should be encouraging is because anybody can do this. This is accessible. You just have to be aware of these doors, of these ideas, of these opportunities and realize how momentum really works and how it begins. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, that, I mean, on one level, it's almost being the right place at the at, at the right time kind yeah. of thing. Mm -hmm. But it, it was also, I mean, it seemingly, you know, clearly Raji Thomas had an idea, right? Mm -hmm. And and sitting in the bowels of what was Odeo, Jack Dorsey had an idea, right? And 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 so, how does how does one create help create the momentum over time? Well, so we already talked about like these first two steps is that one, there's some initial advantage. Mm -hmm. The initial advantage is relevant in a certain place and time. And I encourage people to think about strategy in a different way. Strategy today, strategic opportunity is ephemeral. It's, it's almost like these portals are opening and closing all the time. And, and effective strategy isn't 
a, a, a 200 page document and a five-year plan. It's like <laughs> acting right now. I mean, when I was a young man growing up in business to test a strategy, you had to freaking build something in your garage, right? You had to send it out to people. Today, you go on a, you know, some crowdsourcing site and you just say, I got this idea, what do you think? And you can test things a lot more fluidly, a lot more quickly. Another important thing in building momentum is awareness. In this idea, I have this, in the book, I have this idea called the sonic boom. Again, awareness is not a 12 month plan. It's like, how do we build awareness right now, really big, really fast. And there's some unique ideas and research that go with that. The next step, I talk about the importance of mentorship, but I challenge people to think about mentorship in a new way. That it's not a long-term relationship where you teach something. It's that people, mentorship today is about opening up new doors, making introductions. That can be the fastest and most powerful way to get to that next level if you're mm -hmm. stuck. And then the final idea is about constancy of purpose. It's about discipline. It's about resilience. It's about surrounding yourself with the right people and the resources to keep the momentum going. I had one idea, you know, opportunity in my life. I started this business. I just got worn out by the B2B sales process. <laughs> That's why I stopped the business. Yeah. I couldn't take, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> Everybody loved the idea. It was, I was the right person at the right time. Just, oh my God, I'm so, I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And so I just didn't, I didn't have the discipline. Yeah. And, and so I let it go. So those are, those are the five steps in the process. Mark, can I, can I bring you back to this idea of standing for something? Sure. So we read so much today about woke capitalism mm -hmm. and we're coming off a, you know, a week where, because of what's going on in Georgia with legislation relating to voting, yeah. or if you read Alan Murray's CEO column every morning, he's often talking about this new approach to business, which is something that the business roundtable calls stakeholder capitalism. Do, do you think that new form of capitalism that everyone is talking about pays off commercially? Well, it, 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 it does. It does. And you know, I think, and by the way, I mean, I, I sort of was a little bit, you know, sort of flippant in my answer before, but it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a vitally important topic. And especially like, I mean, the news like today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and here's the difference. Let's say even, even three or four years ago, you could get away with making a statement. Mm -hmm. And today there's a more powerful sort of activism where people can build coalitions very quickly and powerfully on social media right that says look you need to we don't want a statement we want to stand and if you don't take a stand there's going to be a backlash and oh by the way if you do take a stand it can create incredible loyalty one of the most famous examples that everyone can probably connect to is when Nike formed the relationship with Colin Kaepernick. Right. And so from a pure marketing standpoint, that might've seemed like insane. How many CMOs have a job description that say, we want you to create a campaign where people will burn our product in the streets. And that <laughs> is 
your sign of success. Yeah. Clearly, we are in a new day. And you know, Nike lost $4 billion of market value in one day. It was back and more within a week. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said earlier, it kind of connects the, the dots here, Gary, that this is not to be taken lightly. You, right. you know, the thing that concerns me, Gary, is that marketers flock to whatever is popular until they ruin it. <laughs> and the word today that they're going to ruin is purpose. Yeah, yes. It's not to be taken lightly. This has to be in the DNA of your soul, right? If Patagonia says anything or does anything about the environment, you believe it because right. you know that's what it stands for. That's what it's built on. You know, if, if, if they took a stand on something else, you'd go, what? I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. They're kind of flopping in the wind here. And, and, and so that's why I'm just so cautious about this. But we are... We are in a new day where a lot of times companies are being backed into a corner. And I don't think there's an easy roadmap. We are in some new territory here. Yeah. And, and I don't think, you know, I, do, I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer. It's really a case by case evaluation and, and gut wrenching sort of decision. You know, I, I don't think there's a playbook for this. Yeah. And I, but I love your Patagonia authenticity of purpose. Yeah. I, I really, I think a lot of marketers and companies have gotten into trouble. I always use this example, you know, at GE, we turned our, our website purple when Prince died. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know. I get it. You know, I like Prince too, but what does that have to do with the company that makes jet engines, right? Actually, so so I, I'm with you on that, that, that sense of authenticity and, and, and figuring out what it is. So my extension of that question is, so you teach, you're in a classroom with students who are studying this craft. What do you tell them? What is essential for them to know and the skills they need to have in the landscape that you just described? You know, I, I, I just got off an interview with Tom Peters <laughs> and he's just written his last book and he's retiring. And you know, I've written nine books and I've said all this stuff about what marketing needs to be today. And I, so I ended our interview and I said, we've got thousands of people listening and they want to know what are your, what are your final words for marketers today? Mm -hmm. And he said, can you go home and talk to your spouse and your kids and your parents and say, I'm proud of what I did today. And I said, Tom, I wish you had said that a couple of years ago, because that probably would have been like the title of the marketing rebellion. <laughs> he said, I wish I would have said it too. I just said it for the first time right now. But I think there is something poignant here yeah. that number one, if you're doing things that people hate, stop it yeah. because you will lose. The customers will rebel and they will win. They always do. We see this happening right now with the moves that Apple are making and the moves that Google is making around customer privacy. They're not doing this to make advertisers mad. They're doing this because this is what people want. This is what customers want. And if marketers hadn't ignored it for the last 10 years, exactly. we wouldn't be in the mess that we are today. So if you're doing things that people hate, stop it now how the most human company wins. How can we be more human? 
I, 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 I love this quote from Dr. Philip Kotler. He said, what's missing in business today is this human voice that's friendly, accessible, even vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about this example of this company down in Texas, this furniture company, right? The most human company wins. How do we look at everything we do, every touch point and show our heart, show our smile, show our caring and our compassion and the passion for what we do. Take out those stupid stock photos of ethnically diverse families yeah. dancing through, through sunflower fields and use pictures of your customers and, and the voice of your employees and the people who love you. Look at everything we do and just say, how, are we, how can we be the most human insurance company, university, symphony, and that's who's going to win. That is so that's right. That's I mean, it's really, I just, and I see it in, in my students, you know, at Boston University, Mark, that that's where they want to work. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? You, you, know, you know what, Gary? Here's the thing that I think brings you hope and brings me hope is this new generation, because they look at this old way of doing things and they say, why would we do that to each other? Right. They're teaching us new ways to connect and commune and work and market. And the, the, the case studies of amazing inspirational success in my book, almost all of them are from people are, you know, in their 30s or, or yes. younger. Yeah. And there is a way to do it. There absolutely is. And this is a time, to, the greatest skill for a marketer right now is to be humble, is to listen, number one, because if you thought you knew what your customers were about, you don't anymore because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is look at what people are, what they want. How are we connecting and communing now, especially watch the, these young people. I mean, I could go on forever well, on this. It's endlessly fascinating. And that's, it, that's the big idea is this is a time to be humble. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Mark Schaefer. It was great to have you what with us. What a delight. Yeah, yeah. And the book is Cumulative Advantage, How to Build Momentum for Your Ideas, Business, and Life Against All Odds. Read it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.